0: I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're concluding our series on the stories that Jesus told, and I hope you've enjoyed some of these things. I could go on and on for weeks more about some of these stories, but uh, we're running out of time. We're moving into the Advent season after Thanksgiving here, and so uh, I, I want to wrap up this series by sharing this story with you. So we're looking at Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read verse 1 down through verse 12. And so I'll invite you to stand with me as we receive this word together. I hope you've uh, gotten a lot out of this series. I certainly have as I continue to just be amazed at the, uh, the way Jesus told and it revealed so much of his truth about the kingdom. But hear this story today and may we receive the truth that God wants us to have. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables Mark says a man planted a vineyard he put a wall around it dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard but they seized him they beat him and sent him away empty-handed then he sent another servant to them they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. May God add this blessing to his rich word this morning. You can be seated. Little uh, six-year-old Sarah was at her desk in her uh, bedroom drawing on a sketch pad. Her mother passed by the bedroom, saw her engrossed in her work, and asked, What are you doing, sweetheart? Well, the little girl responded, I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, the mother gulped a little and then said, but Sarah, no one can draw a picture of God. No one knows what God looks like. Well, they will when I get done with this picture, mom. Humanity has has always wanted to, to have a clear picture of God. We've always wanted to know what he looks like, his character, his nature. You remember, Thomas the disciple asked Jesus Lord show us the Father and that will be enough for us but Jesus said listen Thomas if you've seen me you've seen the Father he said I and the Father are one if you've seen me you've seen the Father in in, in the personhood and in the teaching of Jesus we have God perfectly represented for us Now, I want to suggest this morning that the story that Jesus tells here in Mark chapter 12, I think gives us another clear picture of God. Jesus uses the situation that is rather common in his day, Palestine being a highly charged political area. Boy, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. It was common to have absentee landlords. Uh, wealthy men would come along they would buy some property and they would rent it out to some farmers and they would go live in a more stable country the farmers would tend the land and they would be responsible of course to, to, to pay some rent or perhaps a percentage of the crop but, but in this story we can discern I think several attributes of God that Jesus wants us to reflect on And by the way, in learning to appreciate and come to grips with this character and person of God, this portrait of God, in an era when so many people are trying to figure out who they are, they're trying to find themselves, what we would do well to do is instead find out who God is and discover who he is and live according to his purposes as our creator But the first thing I want you to notice here is the owner represents the goodness of God. Here we see God's amazing generosity. Notice here that the owner generously provides the tenants with everything that is necessary for a good life. The owner comes along and he plants the vineyard himself, he digs the hole for the wine press. The owner plants uh, the the vineyard, the wine press. He puts a wall around to protect it against animals. The owner then builds a tower for a watchman to guard against thievery. Everything was provided. So all the farmers had to do was come and live on the land, work it, and it would provide a means of supporting themselves. In Balawi, one of the things that I came to so appreciate about what Martin is doing there is, as I shared last week, you know, he's built this guest house, and in fact, he's building another guest house uh, he hopes to have uh, finished by June so that he can bring more people, more teams, and we are developing strategies for that as we speak, but one of the things that surprised me really was that around this guest house, he's built a wall around it. And, uh, but he is very sensitive as he's as he's doing this building, as he's conducting his affairs, to be sensitive to the neighbors around him. For instance, one of the things he did, and this kind of surprised me, he hired two guards to stand outside the house every night with rifles in hand for our safety. Now, I don't know if that made me feel better or worse, but he said, you know, Jeff, these guards are so happy to be able to do this because it means that their families are going to be fed this week. Every morning, give you another for instance, when I got up, I'd take a shower. And I would remember humbly that the water I was using was water that had been carried a mile or so up the road, uh, up a hill even, by some women who had buckets of water on their head. Martin told me again, you know, Jeff, I have a well, and I could just hook it up, and it would all work. But when the women do it, I can pay them, and they can feed their families. And so they're thrilled. Now, that was humbling. Now, originally, this parable talked about God's goodness to the Jewish nation. God had provided everything the Jews would need for a beautiful and bountiful life. He had led them out of slavery in Egypt. He had given them a land where they could dwell, a rich land where they could prosper. He had given them special laws to direct their behavior. He had given them special leadership to help guide them to truth and to himself. God had lavished the Jews with one special provision after another. But you know, as you think about that, this parable also then ought to remind us of how good God has been to you and me. Listen, is there anyone that would contradict this, that God has blessed us beyond measure? We're headed, of course, to Thanksgiving this week. Um, maybe, uh, Maybe this is a time, instead of just overindulging, that we really spend some time thinking about and celebrating what God has done I want to challenge you to take some time this week and think about the benefits that he has poured out to you. Now, I I will offer this pro tip. If if your family goes around the table saying what they're thankful for, and I think that's a great, great idea. I think it's a great thing to do. Just make sure you go first, okay? That's a great thing to do, because if you don't, all the good options get taken. You know, they say Jesus and family, and and, and then then you're stuck with quality dental care or something lame like that. And so, you know, I I just encourage you to, to be up front. Go for it, right up front. Now, of course, that's not really true, is it? I dare you to try to run out of things to be thankful for. God has provided us with a fascinating world to live in the Bible says that when God created the world he looked upon it and he said it's good it's got the right balance of oxygen and gravity the right balance of rain and sunshine it's got the right balance of animal life and plant life it's a good place to live and thrive have you ever just traveled our country you have to be impressed with its beauty no one is an artist like God. The fall season, the fall colors, the, the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, the beautiful horse farms in Kentucky, the, the horseshoe in Columbus. Now, right, right, Jerry? Amen? Can I get an amen? <laughs> now, we have polluted the world, haven't we? It's, it's contaminated, to be sure. You also have that big house in Ann Arbor, and uh, I've been there, and, and, and it's literally a hole in the ground. That's all it is. We have certainly scarred it, to be sure. But think about our bodies. Our bodies which function so so much and so well that when they don't function quite right, we, we're surprised. In my body, I can't perceive them, but there are millions and millions of cells working together in my liver and pancreas and spleen and kidneys, and I don't even know what they really do, but they work. I cuff my hand over my ear and hear the familiar seashell phenomena. They tell me that is literally the the sound of blood cells rushing through the capillaries of my head. I didn't know. Fine hairs are in my inner ear, and they're monitoring the swishing fluid, ready to alter me if I suddenly get off a little of my balance. You and I are fearfully and wonderfully made, and our bodies are amazing. Yeah, we neglect them, we overindulge them, and we abuse them even. But God has provided us with everything we need in which to function I thank God for providing me with a family and in that family I experience security and a sense of love truth is we're living of course in an era when some people feel like the family is just a human function you can disregard it or discard it altogether But I remember that it was God who said, "'It's not good for man to be alone.'" And so he brought the woman, Eve, to Adam, and he performed the first marriage, and he said, "'Be fruitful and multiply.'" And he told us that children were a gift, not a problem to be dealt with, that families were the unit that that he designed as, as the core unit of society. And if you have a loving family, if you grew up in a loving family, If you're part of any of that, you've been richly, richly blessed. On top of this, think about the wealth God has given us. We live in the wealthiest era ever in history. You talk about the 1%. Listen, the 1% is in this room. Again, I can't help but be touched by what I saw in Malawi. In Malawi, while I was visiting... One of the villages there, people are living in these mud huts, no electricity. They have one pair of clothes, one set of clothes to wear. We were playing, of course, with the children, and boy, the kids, they just love to see their picture. When you take a picture of them and be able to show them on their phone, that was just such a highlight for them. But as we're playing and interacting with so many of the kids, I'll never forget I came across one young lady, one little girl, who was eating a small mango. And I I looked at her, and I I tried to make connection with her, and I said, boy, that looks really good, you know. And I kind of said, mm, you know. And, And wouldn't you know it, it was just a couple of minutes later, here she comes with a small little mango in her hand, a young lady who had nothing in this world, but she wanted me to have it. It's humbling spoke to someone yesterday, someone who's done very well in this world, and I said, I want you to come to Malawi with me. It'll change your perspective, I said. He said, I don't want my perspective changed. You know, we don't always know how blessed we are Pastor Bob Russell talks about when his boys were little, he wasn't able to put all the toys on the shelf. And so he said to his oldest son, Rusty, You know, Rusty, I think you just have too many toys. And Rusty said, No, Dad, I don't have enough shelves. And you know, that's the way so many of us really think, isn't it? We don't have enough shelves. Not a big enough garage, not a big enough house, not enough closet space. Not recognizing how very good God has been to us. But notice here that the tenants represent the rebellion of humanity. And by the way, here we see the patience of God. In verse 2, at the harvest time, the owner sends one servant, and he's beaten up. He sends another servant, and they beat him up. They hit him on the head, and then they, they treat him shamefully, the Bible says. And then he sent a third servant, and they killed him. Now, quickly, I just want to think about the characteristics of rebellion, the characteristics of a rebellious heart. And there are really three indications of a person beginning to drift away in rebellion against God. And I want to share these with you very, very quickly. But the first one is this. There is this disrespect for one of God's messengers. When the owner sent his servants to collect the rent, there was no respect for the fact that that the servant represented the owner. And I've seen it again and again across the years. When when a person begins to drift away from God, that person will often begin to resent those who attempt to speak for God. It it might be the pastor or a teacher or an elder in the church. But in Psalm 150, 150 verse 15, we read, touch not God's anointed, do my prophets no harm. And as a general rule, We as Christians are to to respect those who bring God's message. However, I've seen it many times when a person begins to live in rebellion, they begin to resent the preacher. They don't like it when you're stepping on their toes. They don't like to be called out. It grates them to hear the message. Many times over the years, I've realized when someone is mad at me, I've often understood they're really angry with God now the second characteristic of a rebellious heart is a seared conscience notice here how sin makes sin gets progressively worse they beat the first then the second one they hit on the head and they treat him shamefully whatever that means and the third one they killed Now, don't you think that's so true of sin? Always gets worse. It's never benign. It's it's a malignancy that just continues to grow and causes more and more damage. But you know, when our conscience is seared, what what ends up happening in our lives is we end up doing things we never thought possible. We just keep going further. And further down the road now the third characteristic of a rebellious heart is distorted thinking did you notice this part of the story these tenants reason that when the son came along well let's kill him and the property will be ours we will inherit it they said Well, that's just stupid Now, isn't that illogical? The owner is not going to give to these folks his property if they've just killed his son. But you know, that tells us something very important. The truth is, when people become involved in sin, they lose common sense. Suddenly, black becomes white. Wrong becomes right. They lose all sense of reason. So you'll hear people say something like, Well, I think pornography can enhance our relationship. Or, you know, it's been 15 years. We've fallen out of love. I think it's just best we get a divorce. Or maybe this affair is God's will for me. I have to drink because it calms my nerves. Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. But even in this rebellion, we see the patience of God. If the owner is like any one of us, my goodness, we would have brought the fire down when the first servant was harassed. But he sent one, two, three, even more messengers and then he sent his son Martin Luther once said, If I were God and the world treated him like it treated him, I would have kicked the wretched things to pieces. And that's about right. That would have been my reaction. If God had had human reactions, he would have destroyed us long ago. But he didn't. We don't like ingratitude, we resent it when somebody takes us for granted. But interestingly enough, this does raise an important question. What happens to the vineyard when the sun dies? Who gets the vineyard? So in this parable, we see God's goodness poured out, but it's not just the peace of God that amazes us and passes all understanding. It turns out it's his patience, too, now we're smart enough to know that when we read this, we see the sun come, and the sun coming represents the sacrifice of Jesus. The owner said, "Surely they will respect my son." Well, it turns out that's not the case. Jeremiah said, "The heart of man is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. who can know it? And so when the son comes, they said, "Let's kill him." when Jesus came, the Jewish nation, they arrested him. They beat him up, they spit on him, they dragged him outside of the city, and they put him on a cross to die. Now before we go any further here, I want you to think about two things that at least impress me when I look at this story about Jesus. First is, Jesus was recklessly defiant against his enemies, Luke tells us that he spoke this parable right after the triumphal entry. So this is just a few days before he goes to the cross. He knew exactly where he was going, what would happen when he came into the city, and yet there is no sense of cowardice whatsoever. There was no appeasing or attempt to appease his enemies. He, in fact, looks at his enemies, apparently in the eye, and he says, I know what you're going to do. I know where this ends. I know that you're going to execute me. But when you do, you know that you're executing the Son of God. No doubt. Verse 12 says they look for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. And yet Jesus was not afraid of them, and he would not back down. He was an incredible man of courage. But the second thing I want to impress upon you that impresses me about Jesus is, is his bold declaration of his deity. At the beginning of his ministry, you'll know that Jesus was often rather coy and vague about who he really was. There was such political fervor in Palestine that if he would have said, I'm the Messiah, it would have caused a revolution. But now toward the end of his ministry, he boldly declares his deity. And so this parable is a self-portrait. He is the son sent by the father as a final expression of God's love. He's not just another messenger. He's not just another servant. He is the unique son who holds a special place in the father's household. And so Jesus quotes here Psalm 18, and he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now let me ask you this morning, why do some people reject Jesus as the son of God? The reality is, is that people stumble over Jesus all around us. Truth is, they're offended by Jesus. Because I think Jesus stands there towering over the affairs of men and over all time. Jesus stands there saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's offensive to so many in our world. Jesus stands there and says, I am God incarnate. Jesus stands there and says, at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He's a stone over which men and women stumble, and they've been stumbling all of history. They cannot stand the notion that Jesus is the rock. But I want to show you something here. When Peter writes to the church, he says this, Now to you who believe... This stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected, he quoting Psalm 18, has become the chief cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So Peter is saying, Hey, listen, folks you haven't stumbled over him. You've actually come to trust him. So he goes on to say in that same passage, you are a chosen race. Now that's, that's Old Testament language. That's an Old Testament picture. You are a royal priesthood. It, it's a Jewish Picture. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, he says to the church. Peter is using the language of Israel to refer to his church. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are of God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy you see how great this is? You see, the question I asked earlier is this, who gets the vineyard? And if you really want to think this through, go home this afternoon and read Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and ponder all that Paul has to say there about the fact that the rejection of the Jew has meant salvation for the Gentile. The Gentile has been grafted in and the day will come when there will be a great resurgence of the Jewish people who will embrace God's plan fully. But this is a wonderful story for us because of this. It's not so much that Peter is saying, I rejected the Jews and I've gone with this Gentile thing. No, What he is saying is, I've rejected those who stumble over my son, but those who come to trust him from every background, every nation, every tribe, language, and tongue, the others to whom I'm going to give the vineyard. And so Jesus quotes the balance of of the Psalm 18. I hope you're with me. Are you with me? And he says, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. For those who believe in God, look at all he has for us. The vineyard is ours. Now note, Verse 12, the chief priest describes the Pharisees. They cowardly walk away, blinded by their animosity to Jesus and the truth. Now, this is what I want to say, and I want you to listen very carefully. In this parable, the tenants kill the son of, because they recognized him, not because they failed to. Now, there's truth there. I find that there are many people who reject the claims of Christ not because they misunderstand them, but because they understand them all too well. You mean to tell me, that's that's what they will always say, you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? Yes, because he is the only one who lived a perfect life and died for my sins and rose again from the grave. The only one who is qualified to be my Savior. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus is the judge of all the earth and I will give an account someday for my faith and how I conducted my life? Yes. People will say, well, I'm sorry. I just flat out cannot accept all of that. Do you mean to tell me that I have to give up myself and my life in order to become his disciple? Yes. Yes. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross, die to himself daily, and follow me. That's a certainty. That's what he said. You could take it or leave it. No, I'm sorry. That's just too much for anybody to ask. And so they walk away. And the son is rejected. Not because his claims are misunderstood, but because the claims are so clearly understood. And so I ask you, how about you this morning? How about you? Have you decided... That, that stone is precious to you? Or is it simply a stumbling block? That stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray in this moment we would all come to grips with the stone, Jesus Christ, the rock, the everlasting rock, the chief cornerstone. Lord, are we building our life on this firm foundation? Or is it causing us to stumble? Lord, I suspect that there's someone here today that has to make a decision. And the truth is they can walk away just as those chief priests and scribes did. But, Lord, I pray they wouldn't stumble. Instead, I pray their eyes would be opened and they would say yes to building their life on the person and work of Jesus Christ. May every person here who walks out of this room, Lord, know where they stand with you. May they say yes indeed to the great salvation that you've offered and to the benefit of being called a part of your family, your possession, a holy nation people who were given the vineyard. Lord, I pray that your work will be accomplished in our hearts, that you will speak to us clearly and we will know you fully, that today we will take up our cross, we will die to ourselves, and we will follow you. I ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Cornerstone. Amen.